Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, you're listening to Chronically Chilled on 3CR. My name is Mario Pojega. Uh, before we do anything, I just want to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation whose land we broadcast from. Um, so on today's show, you're going to be hearing from Vicky Reynolds. So Vicky is a psychotherapist and activist um, from Canada, um, and she supervises and supports frontline workers and activists who work alongside marginalised communities there. So Vicky has a deep commitment to social justice and her work is based on an anti-oppression and decolonizing framework that puts the spirit of solidarity and ethics at the forefront. Um, Vicky generously gave me some time at the end of three consecutive full days of workshops um, when she was in Melbourne recently. Um, I was absolutely thrilled to be able to speak with Vicky. Um, she's been a huge influence on my own work um, and always leaves me feeling completely challenged, um, but also really invigorated as well. So in this conversation, we talk about the way psychology-based responses and language can cause harm and invisible away the impact of oppression and societal inequality on people's well-being. Um, so Vicky also talks about the limitations of self-care and talks in the context of the current opioid epidemic and deaths that are currently happening um, in Canada. Um, so I began by asking Vicky to describe herself and her work. I'm Vicky Reynolds. Um, I'm a psychotherapist and an adjunct professor, which I guess means I have a PhD. I live in Vancouver, Canada, on uh, Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh territories. Those are the territories I live and work in. Um, I've worked with survivors of torture for about three decades. I've been the addiction supervisor in the downtown east side of Vancouver. That's the poorest part of Canada outside of First Nations reserves. Um, I work a lot with homelessness. Really now, I'm responding to the opiate disaster, uh, which is a poisoning, and thus political deaths. It's really not addiction. Um, I'm an activist, and... Um, you know, I've worked at the Rape Crisis Center. I guess I work as a drug and alcohol counselor as well. But really, I see my work in the academy, in all of the places that I do paid work and my unpaid work, as trying to bridge the worlds of social justice activism and direct action activism, mm -hmm. in particular, yeah. into community work. Yeah. That's kind of what I do. So in the workshop today, um, you were saying that your activism, you traced it back to when you were about 12. <laughs> so I'm wondering just how you navigate kind of your activism and then also being in spaces and training that is around therapy and, and academia and stuff and how you kind of, yeah, place yourself in all that. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a very tenuous relationship with academia. Hmm. That's a pretty outlandish thing to say for someone who has a PhD, 27 years of school, and I'm an adjunct professor. I'm also pretty well published in peer-reviewed journals. I think as an activist, one of the things, the question I'm always asking in the supervision I do of workers, but also in sustaining activists, is what is the best use of me? 
That's what I'm always after, the best use of me, and that's what led me to the academy. I'm somebody that school's been very good to, mm. um, and I think a, most of that is based on me having you know, white, white supremacy on my side, mm. um, that you can have no money access and you can have other problems, but you know, being white, if, if I wasn't white, I wouldn't have been able to get to school, I wouldn't imagine. Mm. But uh, my participation in the academy has been a tactic as part of a bigger strategy of social justice doing, trying to infiltrate spaces, right? Mm. I think about um, social justice activism as thinking, what is the best use of me? What, is, what are the resources I've got to bring? And how can I make structural change here? So I think we need to have people infiltrating the academies and being published and putting out um, social justice uh, work in these domains that are particularly, like uh, in psychology, um, you know, these domains have been taken over by big pharma and um, the trauma industry, as well as um, the prison industrial complex, where we start to come up, and, and legislated poverty, where we start to come up with the usual suspects to explain away people's suffering mm -hmm. as either addiction, mental illness, or trauma. So I think it's important to have somebody with a PhD in psychology saying the problem is not addiction, mental illness, or trauma, the problem is colonization, white supremacy, a lack of housing, legislative poverty, transphobia. It is oppression, not depression. So for me, I'm in those spaces because it's a good use of me. Yeah. I actually wanted to ask you more about that um, because, yeah, we kind of have these narratives in society even, which is about, you know, mental illness and, and this person. And we get kind of, we throw around a lot of labels and all this stuff. Um, and they're very individual in terms of this person has a problem and we need to treat this individual and then send them back to the world and stuff. Um, and one of the things I like about what you say is it's actually oppression and society-wide problems that are causing this stuff. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I think that's well said on your part. You know, <laughs> I think that's my goal is to try to have that be people's analysis. So where I live in Vancouver, um, in Canada right now, the government is saying officially about 14 people a day are dying from opiate poisonings. Oh, they're not saying opiate poisonings, they're saying overdoses mm. caused by fentanyl, as if fentanyl is the problem. That is not the problem. Yeah. And then we can easily get to asking ourselves, why are people using heroin if we know fentanyl is in it? And then it's always the usual suspects. Is it because they're addicted? Mm. Is it because they're traumatized? Is it because they're mentally ill? And this language of psychology passes so smoothly, and yet it's really obscuring a lot of violence and oppression. Mm. And it also hides the resistance of people who are trying to stay alive and deal with their lives. People aren't using drugs because they're um, addicted, mentally ill, or traumatized, they're using drugs because they're responding to suffering in their lives. And some people are drug users. And we have to, like I believe, in, I'm pro-choice, and I believe in autonomy. So what's happening is a substance um, has been poisoned, and so the people using that, because it's criminalized, these people are criminalized, these lives are ones that are totally disposable in our society. And the language of psychology is being used to blame people for their own suffering and deaths. Mm -hmm. That's the problem with it. And you're right onto it. It's about individualization. And now instead of, we don't use the language of violence, oppression, and suffering. We use the language of mental illness. 
And then we look, we look inside the person's brain to find out how do we blame them for their own suffering. And for me, this is really unethical, especially as an activist, because not only am I required to respond to human suffering, but I need to leverage all of the collective power we hold between us to try to change the context in which these horrors occur. It's not enough for me to try to make someone feel, you know, deal with their, quote, trauma symptoms after rape. I need to end rape culture more than that. I need to build a consent culture. I need to address all genders in terms of how they're being influenced by this and how we're perpetrating this and how we're being oppressed by this, right? Mm. So, you know, the problem with psychology and these kind of languages of the usual suspects is it ends our inquiry. We don't get curious about what's really going on and it, it obscures what's really going on, which is just rampant capitalism on indigenous people's territory, on stolen mm. native land. Mm. So you have colonization at the bottom, invasion, occupation, genocide and assimilation. And on top of that, in these settler countries like Australia and Canada, we've got this intersection of power, which is about white supremacy, capitalism, you know, all of those kind of issues. In the United States, um, they, you know, slavery and black labor that was enslaved had built them the biggest economy in the world. Australia and Canada don't have that, but that doesn't mean we're not racist and mm -hmm. it doesn't mean all of these things aren't at play. So I think I'm really concerned about how psychology um, presents itself as neutral, professional, and objective, yeah. and has never been those things. It has always been used to subjugate people. And Nick Todd and Alan Wade wrote an article a long time ago called Psycolonization, and talked about the correlations between the apparatus of colonization and the apparatus of psychology, and they're absolutely similar paths. Yeah. And I think this is very illuminating. We need to look at how all of these interlocking oppressions use similar tactics mm -hmm. so that we can kind of take them apart. Yeah. And, and it's also not just the, about awareness raising either, which I feel like that's as far as it goes when we start looking a bit broader, is we do a lot of awareness raising, but it actually doesn't tackle any of the structures that you know, um, cause oppression in the first place. Well, you know, I think, um, there, I'm really informed by queer theory, and I'm a straight person. I owe an awful lot to the queer and trans community for my analysis and for uh, family of choice and love relationships that have really moved me forward. But I'm thinking here um, about the work of um, Annie Leibowitz's partner, who I named today. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a nice gray streak, just like I do. I hope I'm like her. A photographer, Susan Sontag, a photographer who was in queer space in the United States who's since passed. And she talks about representation. And this, the limitations of awareness. Mm -hmm. It is such a low bar. And, and what she talks about in pornography, which I would name P-O-O-R-nography, this is an analysis that came from Oxfam. So you have a picture of you know, the white savior from the white savior industrial complex, right? Um, so you have a, one of the latest princesses or something, or rock stars, whatever it is, in Africa, you know, and, and not, not a country in Africa, but just generally Africa, right? That colonial construction, um, with their hands on the head of an African child who's got flies in their eyes. And then people's response to that is this, it's supposed to build awareness. That's why we're allowed to see these things. What Sontag says is, we see vulnerability, but they don't see us. And then what it does is it genders, engenders our sympathy, which is not compassion. Compassion says, I've also suffered. Sympathy says, I'm going to respond with charity and I feel sorry for you. Uh, it engenders this kind of sympathy that's held simultaneously 
with, um, with powerlessness. It's like, oh my God, nothing can be done and I feel so bad and then I give $100 to this you know, right-wing Christian colonizing savior complex stuff. Um, and then we talk to each other about it. We feel like we've, quote, raised our awareness, but what we have not done in terms of Sontag's analysis is mapped our privileges onto the poverty and oppression that's happening. And so awareness is, is a limiting, it's a limiting project because it doesn't move to action, but it can also be a project that's self-fulfilling in terms of awareness being the whole limit. Mm. You know, like, like all I'm required to do is know about this. When we're not, we're required to map our own privileges collectively on there. Noam Chomsky talks about this, anarchist Noam Chomsky from the United States, from MIT in Boston talks about, is MIT in Boston? I think so. <laughs> but anyway, Noam Chomsky talks about that in terms of the limitations of any of our individual acts, that it has to be collective. You know, our individual consumer choices is not actually going to save the world, that we have to organize, you know, in social collectives around collective ethics and hold each other to account that that's how we're going to do things. So that's a better response to mm. me than these ideas about awareness raising. Yeah. You know? and, and I also worry, so I worry about awareness raising taking the place of activism and quieting dissent and making people feel like they've had a response when all they've done is given a capitalist contribution to charity yeah. and charity yeah. is not a justice model, right? So I'm, I'm worried about... Um, you know, some of the mechanisms, some of the ways we're co-opted in activists and social justice movements. Um, and it benefits folks in terms of, quote, feeling better about things when mm -hmm. I think we should be very distressed about this. Uh, like, just to continue on this, mm -hmm. some of the um, workers that I'm talking about and some activists, like people are talking about things like burnout and vicarious trauma, in the present opiate disaster that we're in, which are deaths by drug policy, you know, that's what Donald McPherson is a, uh, a drug policy analyst from Vancouver and a brilliant man who's, he's, the, he's one of the guys who brought harm reduction practices into Vancouver, mm -hmm. but that's what he calls them, death by drug policy. But if we're, if we're talking about like these folks that are dying by, um, you know, by this death policy and people you know, responding to that, and we're worried about workers. Some of the language people are using is that workers are struggling with a lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And that's mental illness language. I always tell people, you're out of scope. I can tell someone they have anxiety, you can't. Yeah. Anxiety is a real thing, if it's a real thing, and it's got criteria. So if I were to interview someone and they met the criteria for anxiety, and I got them to someone who could prescribe medication and they took it, over time, their uh, traumatic, symptoms of anxiety should go down. There is no pill you can take that's going to make it okay for 14 Canadians a day to die of something that could be over with tomorrow if we had the moral courage mm. at all levels of government in all parties to end the criminalization of substances yeah. and to decriminalize heroin, make it a... Um, a restricted substance that you knew that, that what you were getting and that you had it available in a supervised injection site. Yeah. So this is an anxiety, this is dread. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I would say is uh, the work is dreadful right now. It's full of dread. So the workers don't need to go to more yoga or take anxiety pills. We need justice. We need the government to uh, show up and do the right thing. And we need Canadian citizens to be worried 
that the people who are dying are human beings because right now they're getting written off as drug users, IV drug users, and homeless people. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of skepticism on the ground mm -hmm. about why these deaths are being allowed to continue. There's no way if the poisoning was in the wine substance that we wouldn't have fixed it yesterday because rich people would die, white people would die, professionals would die. Yeah. But their substance of choice is totally safe, right? It's all political, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So there'll be um, a lot of people listening to this who are you know, already working in towards the social justice, so it could be in activist spaces or professional spaces as well. Yeah. Um, and often I hear people talk about self-care and the need for self-care and stuff. Um, you talk about a collective care. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the idea of vicarious trauma actually comes, um, like a direct quote on that is that clients infect us with their hopelessness. And I feel like it's my job to bring hope to a suffering person. It's not their job to bring hope to mm -hmm. me. I'm really concerned that we're now worried about vicarious trauma, which is a mental illness diagnosis of workers. What, what I have found across time supervising people for over three decades in work in the margins, you know, rape crisis centers, people working with survivors of torture, people working with homelessness, people working in the queer and trans non-binary community, working with what gets called suicide, mm -hmm. which I believe hate kills, that people don't kill themselves, their lives are stolen. All these folks doing this work, what I find is no one blames their clients for the harms that they experience. Everybody tells me what's, what's heartbreaking for them is that they're not able to deliver justice to people, that we're not resourced the way that we need to be, and that we're not able to you know, do the things we know might make a difference in people's lives. Participating in practices that are unethical are not, you cannot be well if what you're doing is unethical. Mm -hmm. And that's why I talk about that as spiritual pain. I think spiritual pain explains a great deal more than vicarious trauma, that if I'm required to tell someone, I just think about a 20, there's a guy in his early 20s working in a shelter. One of the first years we opened shelters in Vancouver and they couldn't have children or youth in those shelters. And there's many enemies of shelters and housing even now in Vancouver, right? And we knew we were, that they were being watched and that if we let a youth into an adult shelter, there would be an attempt to close the whole shelter. But this young man had to turn away a young woman in the middle of the night even though there was room in a shelter because he knew people that there were, quote, neighbors, NIMBYs, not in my backyard, which I believe is a hate position because really what they're saying is not in anybody's backyard, which is now we're talking about extermination. Mm. Anyway, uh, he knew that he couldn't let this young person into the shelter. And this 20-year-old guy had to tell a young girl who's 14 or 15 that she was not allowed to come into the shelter. And she said to him, cause he phoned me, he was in such distress this is not vicarious trauma, this is spiritual pain. And he called me in distress and said, Vicki, she said to me, are you telling me that I am safer on the street than I am in that shelter? There's good men in there that are part of my street family. I am saying I'm safe enough. Are you telling me I'm safer on the street? And he said, I'm not telling you you're safer on the street. I'm telling you, you cannot come into this shelter. And that young guy had to finish, close the door on her, finish his shift alone, and then go home alone. Yoga's not going to make that okay. Drinking decaf coffee and, you know, cold-pressed vegetables <laughs> is great, but it is not, it should not make him okay with that. And that collective cares. He called me. I need to be in solidarity with him. He is not personally responsible for doing that. That's on everybody in Vancouver for letting that get organized that way, for denying that young woman safety when we had access to it. 
So that collective care is about solidarity, sharing collective ethics and holding each other to account when what we're doing is unethical and shouldering each other up when we're not able to deliver ethics and then using all the avenues to power that we have to organize and try to change the social context in which that kind of violence happened against that young woman. That is not, that can't land on the shoulder of that individual worker, but it does. And that's this, when we talk about vicarious trauma, like you said earlier, it becomes very individual as if that person didn't do enough self-care. Well, you know, self-care is never going to make you okay with that, nor should it. I think the other thing I want to say about that is happiness is quite overrated. Happiness is, is one sphere of human emotion. I've been very unhappy the last four years of this opiate epidemic. I'm heartbroken. I have dark dreams. I don't think I'm vicarious traumatized. I think I am in the midst of responding to a disaster of a level that's higher than the AIDS epidemic, which I was part of fighting against as well. Um, I'm, I'm, real, I'm not, I'm not uh, depressed. <laughs> Uh, I just think that I'm aware of what's actually going on and I work very hard to have believable hope in my life because I need to offer that hope to other workers I'm trying to shoulder up, but we're not talking about optimism here. And uh, what we're talking about is a real fight for people's lives collectively, right? And I, and I mean that collectively. I, this isn't charity. I don't, I'm not fighting against this opiate disaster for people who use drugs. I'm doing this for me. I don't want to live in a world. I don't want to be in a place where, you know, if I get uh, lung cancer or a bad heart next year, I'm going to be able to get a transplant because young people are dying and their organs are good and transplants are going up. I don't, I don't want to live in that world. Mm. You know, this is, I am inextricably linked to this. That's what solidarity means, isn't it? That our, all of our struggles for justice are united. We're not talking, they're connected. We're, when I talk about solidarity, I'm not talking about perfect unity, I'm talking about points of connection. Mm. And the coalition of people who've come together with points of connection to fight against this structural government violence has been fantastic. Mm. I've never had such good conversations with cops, fire department, ambulance drivers. They're listening to shelter workers and folks, homeless folks and unhoused people who are responding to the epidemic with these illegal overdose prevention sites. There's like conversations happening that were never happening before. Mm. You know, like, so there's a lot that's encouraging and hopeful. Um, and that's my job, is to try to maintain, you know, a finger hold on dignity when death is ever near. Mm -hmm. And just seeing, like, what is it the next move collectively that we can do to move things forward? That's collective care. Mm -hmm. That's collective care. And I don't feel like we need to be friends either to do that for each other. Would you agree? Yeah, I, like, you know, what I think about is um, in activist communities, you know, um, in particular actions that show up for, um, you know, like the homelessness march, we know there's gonna be a response from the state to that. Anybody who goes on that march, I am in solidarity with. I don't need, if you're on that march, I don't need to know you. Yeah. I have a revolutionary love for you. I do believe that there are police informants who infiltrate things. I, like, so I don't wanna be, I don't wanna sound totally naive that I, that has been true in all direct action I've been a part of across my lifespan and before me, you know, with. AIM and Contelpro and those kind of actions. Canada's Australia, we're not outside of those actions. But that, um, I don't need to know people. I don't need to like people. I don't have to have friendships with people. I need to have these points of connection where people are showing up and doing embodied direct action that is you know, really addressing state power. I'm in solidarity with that. And I know if anything happens, those folks will have my back. You know, I don't, I don't have to question that. And for me, there's a spirituality of that. There's a sacred space 
to that, that is the doing of solidarity. Um, and uh, Lacey calls that the social divine. Mm -hmm. And I've experienced the social divine when I go to an overdose prevention site and I see people who are unhoused being paid 10 bucks an hour with no benefits or pension or days off showing up and saving their peers' lives again and again. That's the social divine. That totally, this does not burn me out. This totally fills me. And it's, bro it's heartbreaking. Yeah. The point is not to not have a broken heart. That is not a measure of mental wellness. Mm. <laughs> to be mentally well during these kind of crisis of humanity, you know, it doesn't, uh, responding to this stuff by not, by ignoring it and uh, being happy and shopping is not, those are not indicators of mental wellness. Mm. You know, we're, we're, we're measuring the wrong stuff, I think. Yeah. Um, Vicky, thank you so much for your generosity and your time. Oh, thanks. My, my privilege to be here. I, I really hope this is useful to people and I honor all the work that you're all doing. <laughs>